It's March 15th, otherwise known as the Ides of March. In 44 BC, March 15th became notorious as the day of the assassination of Julius Caesar. This day, the Ides of March, was considered a turning point in Roman history. We know that the turning point in our history is when we surrender our old man to death and rest in the provision of the new life birthed within us by the Holy Spirit when we put our trust in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As April 15th is known as Tax Day here in the United States, March 15th was notable in the Roman world as a deadline for settling debts. We can rejoice that our debt under God's law was settled on our behalf through the substitutionary self-sacrifice of Christ. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid the debt he did not owe. The resurrection gives us the receipt in hand that our sin debt has been fully paid. In ancient Rome, March 15th was also a holiday called Memoralia, a ritual symbolizing driving out the old year as an old man, the old year making way for the new. As Christians, we can celebrate every day and not just March 15th knowing that our old man has been crucified with Christ. My name is David McAdam, and this is the One Year Bible Tour. We're making progress as we read through the entire Bible together this year with daily stops in the Old and New Testaments, as well as stops in the books of Psalms and Proverbs. We're in the book of Numbers today, otherwise known as the Book of Wanderings, and we left with a cliffhanger yesterday as Balaam, a pagan prophet, was being bribed to curse those whom God had blessed. And as we've learned, if God be for you, who can be against you? So we're going to pick up our story in Numbers chapter 22, beginning with verse 21, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey, and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey, on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, 
I have come out to oppose you, because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, Go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. When Balak heard that Balaam had come, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, on the border formed by the Arnon, at the extremity of the border. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not send to you to call you? Why did you not come to me? Am I not able to honor you? Balaam said to Balak, Behold, I have come to you. Have I now any power of my own to speak anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that must I speak. Then Balaam went with Balak, and they came to Kiriath Huzoth. And Balak sacrificed oxen and sheep, and sent for Balaam and for the princes who were with him. And in the morning Balak took Balaam and brought him up to Bamoth Baal, and from there he saw a fraction of the people. Balaam's First Oracle, Chapter 23 And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said. And Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, Stand beside your burnt offering, and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me, and whatever he shows me I will tell you. And he went to a bare height, and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars, and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and thus you shall speak. And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were standing beside his burnt offering. And Balaam took up his discourse and said, From Aram Balak has brought me, the king of Moab, from the eastern mountains. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? For from the top of the crags I see him, from the hills I behold him. Behold, a people dwelling alone and not counting itself among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. And he answered, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Balaam's second oracle. And Balak said to him, Please, come with me to another place from which you may see them. You shall see only a fraction of them and shall not see them all. Then curse them for me from there. And he took him to the field of Zophim on the top of Pisgah and built seven altars and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. Balaam said to Balak, Stand here beside your burnt offering while I meet the Lord over there. And the Lord met Balaam and put a word in his mouth and said, 
return to Balak, and thus shall you speak. And he came to him, and behold, he was standing beside his burnt offering, and the princes of Moab with him. And Balak said to him, What has the Lord spoken? And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear. Give ear to me, O son of Zippor. God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. He has not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord their God is with them, and the shout of a king is among them. God brings them out of Egypt and is for them like the horns of the wild ox. For there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Now it shall be said of Jacob and Israel, What has God wrought? Behold, a people, as a lioness it rises up, and as a lion it lifts itself. It does not lie down until it has devoured the prey and drunk the blood of the slain. And Balaam said to Balak, Do not curse them at all, and do not bless them at all. But Balaam answered Balak, Did I not tell you all that the Lord says, that I must do? And Balak said to Balaam, Come now, I will take you to another place. Perhaps it will please God that you may curse them for me from there. So Balak took Balaam to the top of Peor, which overlooks the desert. And Balaam said to Balak, Build for me here seven altars, and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. And Balak did as Balaam had said, and offered a bull and a ram on each altar. And this is the end of our reading from the Old Testament book of Numbers, to be continued tomorrow. So let's take a moment to reflect upon what we have just read. We are learning why Balaam was a false prophet, even though his four prophecies were true. Balaam had been known as a broker of blessings and curses. Like many career occultists, he received bids from those who needed help and was all too ready to comply. The Apostle Peter writes about false prophets in his second epistle in the New Testament. He describes them as those who secretly introduce destructive heresies, who deny the Master, follow their sensuality, in their greed exploit others with false words, and entice unstable souls. He then describes the path that Balaam took, saying, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. In Second Peter chapter 2, verses 1-15, through 15, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, puts Balaam in the category of Cain and Korah, for they all, quote, reviled the things which they did not understand." End quote. Jude chapter 1, verses 10 to 11. When Balak, king of Moab, needed someone to curse Israel, he solicited the help of Balaam, a man who had an international reputation as having supernatural powers in both blessing and cursing. He spared no expense to gain his services. Although Balaam was from more than 400 miles away, in Numbers 22, verse 6, Balaam lived in Pethor, northeast of Palestine in the region of Syria and Mesopotamia, where many gods were worshipped. There is no indication that Balaam was exclusively in the service of the God of Israel, although it is clear that he was familiar with Yahweh and in this instance called upon his name. 
King Balak sent the distinguished elders of Moab to recruit Balaam. Their god was Chemosh in Numbers 21-29, but they would accept the services of any deity that was up to the task of cursing Israel. They traveled for days with fees in hand. They had sufficient money for any prophet. Balaam received them well and put them up overnight. When he learns of their request to curse Israel, he promises to get back to them after the Lord, Yahweh of Israel, speaks to him. The fact that Balaam does not warn them that those who curse Israel will be cursed indicates that Balaam had little understanding of the introductory promise given by Yahweh to Abraham, or he was unwilling to be truthful to his guests. That night, the Lord does in fact speak to him. The Lord commands Balaam not to go with the men from Moab and not to curse the Israelites, for they are blessed. When Balaam reports to the delegates from Moab that the Lord has refused to let him go back with them, he only tells them part of the message. He does not tell them that God clearly said the Israelites are blessed. If Balaam had the character of a true prophet of God, he would have esteemed the word of Yahweh by refusing further solicitations, and he would have spoken the full truth about Yahweh's blessing. But false prophets are experts in speaking partial truths. They will be careful not to offend their clientele. When the elders report Balaam's refusal to King Balak, the king of Moab sends a more impressive group of representatives, persuasive princes who promise to bestow great honor upon Balaam and whatever fee he might ask for. Although God had already made known his will, Balaam wants to keep the door open for future business. He understands that the God of Israel has put an irrevocable blessing upon his people. He communicates to the Moabites that he is bound to God's word without saying what God's word is. He says, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything, either small or great, contrary to the command of the Lord my God. In Numbers 22.18 This soundbite is designed to give his Moabite customers reason to believe he truly submitted to God and that his services would be a great asset to their cause. The deepest longings of Balaam's heart are for honor and wealth. That motive governs his behavior. He is happy to host the princes and to inquire to see if the Lord has more to say on the subject. God again comes to Balaam and says, If the men have come to call you, rise up and go with them, but only the word which I speak shall you do. In Numbers 22:20, With God's permission, Balaam saddles his donkey and goes with the leaders of Moab. Although he is complying with the permissive will of God, we learn that God is angry that Balaam is determined to go against his original command. Balaam knew what God wanted him to do, but did not want to shut the door on the opportunity of serving these great men and being respected by them. We see once again that God often uses people he is not pleased with, who do things that he hates, in order to accomplish his greater purposes. His will of desire or command is different from his permissive will. In his permissive will, God allows people to do things that he has forbidden in order that his ultimate will will be accomplished. We see this in the genealogy of Jesus. The sexual sins of Judah and King David, which were against God's moral will of command, are in the end proved to be in the sovereign will of God, in that the prophetic lineage of the Messiah is upheld. King Balak wants to hire Balaam to curse Israel. To curse Israel would be a violation of God's command, but the Lord will sovereignly overrule 
and use Balaam to bless Israel. God will make a display of Balaam's foolishness. He will demonstrate that God can put words into the mouth of a donkey as easily as into the mouth of a man, and a donkey can have more vision of what is real and true than someone who professes to be a divine seer. The Apostle Peter writes, quote, But he received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. End quote. Second Peter 2.16 God has to pull the sword against sinful men and reveal what is in the heart. In the book of Genesis, we first see the angels in action guarding the way to the tree of life, preventing unholy mankind from eternally perpetuating his unholy state. The cherubim with flaming swords at the east of the Garden of Eden know that sinful men need to go to the tree of death, that is the cross where they are crucified with Christ, before they can have access to the tree of life as in Christ ones in Genesis 3.24. The cherubim are next seen pictured upon the curtains that hang on the east side of the tabernacle and again on the veil that guards access to the holiest of all. The cherubim also guard the mercy seat watching over the Ark of the Covenant. Mankind can only have access to the tree of life, the presence of God's glory, by means of the death of Christ evidenced by His shed blood. These angels stand guard, protecting God's interests. God's justice must be satisfied. The testimony of God's holiness must be protected. Sin must be put away and mankind born anew in Christ if fellowship in eternal life is to be established. Therefore, the blood of the sacrifice must be upon the mercy seat before the glory of the Lord will fill the sanctuary. Later in the unfolding story, Joshua will meet an angel with a drawn sword. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, rather, indeed, I come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Balaam is not quick to bow to the Lord. His donkey is more prone to do so than he is. Nor is he quick to admit his stubborn rebellion and greed. As Balaam and his donkey set out with the Moabite dignitaries, the angel of the Lord stands in his way with a sword drawn against him. Balaam, the so-called seer, is blind to the presence of the Lord's messenger. However, his donkey sees the angel and is terrified. The animal turns off from the way and goes into a field. Balaam beats the donkey. The angel of the Lord once again stands in Balaam's way. This time, he stands in a narrow path of the vineyard with a wall on both sides. There was no place for the donkey to turn, to the right or to the left. Therefore the donkey leans away from the angel, pressing Balaam's foot against the wall. Balaam beats his donkey again. The angel of the Lord goes further and again stands in a place where the donkey has no recourse but to lay down under Balaam. Once more, Balaam beats the donkey. Then the Lord opens the donkey's mouth and speaks, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Some discount the veracity of this record of a talking beast. The Bible does not say that this donkey had the ability to speak. Peter says that the donkey was mute, but God spoke through the animal on this occasion with a human voice. 
If God can project audible words from a burning bush or a cloud of glory, he can put his words in the mouth of a beast of burden. Balaam hardly seems humbled by this supernatural intervention by which his donkey speaks to him. Instead, he defends his stubbornness. It is only when the Lord opens his eyes to the angel that he bows to the ground. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out as an adversary, because your way was contrary to me. What kind of external dealing is required in our lives for God to make known that our ways are contrary to His? What kind of dealing is needed for us to recognize our sin? Balaam confessed, I have sinned, and expresses his willingness to go back if that is pleasing to the angel. But the angel of the Lord tells him to go with the men of Moab and commands him, You shall speak only the word which I tell you. The angel of the Lord is identified here as God, the one who said earlier the same thing. Balak takes Balaam to the high places, the pagan altars of Baal, from where he can only see a portion of the people of Israel camping in the valley. Balaam asks Balak to build seven altars and prepare seven bulls and rams for the Lord. Balaam gives four prophetic parables. Each one of them is true. They are the words put in his mouth by the same sovereign Lord that could put words in the mouth of the donkey. There are four messages that are given from different vantage points. The first message is from Kiriath-Huzoth, the city of streets, where Balaam prophesies from the high places of Baal from where he can see only a portion of the people of Israel. Message number one is that Israel is a separate people. As I see him from the top of the rocks and I look at him from the hills, behold, a people who dwells apart and will not be reckoned among the nations. In verse 9 of Numbers 23, God's people are called to be holy because God is holy. Their covenant relationship with God distinguishes them. Their laws, their Sabbath, and their behavior are countercultural. Balak is upset that Balaam pronounces a blessing rather than a curse in Numbers 23.11. Balak takes Balaam to the field of Zophim, literally meaning the lookout, spying place, on the top of Pisgah, the cleft of the rock, which affords a great view of the promised land across the Jordan. Message number two is that Israel will be a victorious people because the Lord has blessed them and is in their midst. From this new vantage point, Balaam again prophesies that Israel has an irrevocable blessing. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. When he has blessed, then I cannot revoke it. Numbers 23, 19-20 Instead of seeing Israel's many faults, from this vantage point, Balaam proclaims, He has not observed misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. Israel will be victorious, for the Lord his God is with him, and so is the shout of a king in the people who have no king but their God. Prophecy number three and number four will be in tomorrow's reading. Now let's go to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. And we are reading about the birth of John the Baptist. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. 
and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, quote, His name is John. End quote. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is the end of the New Testament reading from the Gospel of Luke. It is wonderful when, after God fulfills his promise and brings forth this child, John the Baptist, that his father, Zechariah, has his tongue loosed, and the first words that he says is that his name shall be John, and he begins to sing. Many people in the Bible did this, turning what they heard from God into song. In the first chapter, we hear two songs. The first was Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, which we read yesterday. And today, we have the song of Zechariah. When John the Baptist is born, according to the promise of God, his father Zechariah prophesies, and the prophecy heralds the role of his son. In verse 76, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This final part of the song, which is directed to John the Baptist, shows us that his role is to direct us to the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who will guide our feet into the way of peace. For Jesus is the Prince of Peace. 
And now our reading from the book of Psalms. Psalm 58, verses 1 to 11. Concerning the God who judges the earth. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. A miktam being a liturgical or musical term. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. We desire injustices to be put right, especially when we have suffered them personally. This psalm takes up the theme of injustice in a broader sense. It speaks of injustices perpetuated by those in authority, rulers who plot injustice and spread violence throughout the land. In Psalm 58 verses 1 to 5, we have a description of their evil ways. We know that God is a God who loves justice. Therefore, the psalmist makes a plea that God punish the wrongdoer in verses 6 through 9. The final verses, verses 10 through 11, describe the joy of the godly when injustice is avenged. In earlier psalms, David expressed his personal need for God's mercy, such as in Psalm 51. We must never forget this. The good news involves both God's justice and His mercy. Justice demands penalty to the wrongdoer. When we are faced with God's justice, we recognize that all sin is a violation of His law and therefore is an offense against Him personally. All of us have sinned and are in need of the removal of God's wrath against our sin. To be given a full pardon is mercy. God goes further. He devises a way for His full favor to be restored to us by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. God's desire for both justice and mercy is perfectly satisfied in the cross. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. In 1 Peter 3.18 we read, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The gift of God's life, being made alive in the Spirit, is the reward for those who have been made right with him through faith in the finished work of his Son, Jesus Christ. We can rejoice in God's mercy, while at the same time saying, Surely there is a God who judges on earth. 
and Psalm 58, verse 11. And now for today's proverb, Proverbs chapter 11, verses 12 through 13. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. How do we handle difficult people? These proverbs give us good advice on appropriate responses to both difficult people and difficult situations. We may find people difficult to live with, but we need not despise them. Your attitude depends upon you. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. You are responsible for your speech. At times it is wise to withhold your criticism. There are appropriate and inappropriate ways to share your opinions. We build trust when we know whether or not it is appropriate to share information. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do not take it lightly that you have commanded a blessing upon us who are in Christ Jesus. We rejoice that we can say that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. It is a blessing that cannot be reversed. Thank you for drawing us to your Son, enlightening us with the knowledge of your grace, and guiding us into the way of peace. We are grateful for the mercy we have received, and we ask that we would minister the truth about your mercy and your grace to others. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for reading with us today. I hope that you have found today's portion edifying and encouraging. Again, we encourage you to visit our website, newlife.org, and you can learn more about the ministries of New Life Community Church in Concord. We pray that God's blessing be with you as you seek to glorify Him in all your ways. Shalom. Shalom.